Good morning, good morning. How are we, Southview? All right, glad to have you with us. If you are a guest today, welcome. My name is Brad. I am the pastor here at Southview, and it is so great to have you with us today as we're beginning worship together. Um, as we begin our time of worshiping together, I want to show you a picture and read some scripture. So what you see right here is a picture uh, from space. What you see is... You are looking at the, the black space there in the top left corner and then the rings around. You are looking at Saturn. And that tiny little white dot underneath the rings, you know what that is? That's you. That's Earth. You are looking at a picture of Earth from 898 million miles away. And here's going to be the big idea. You thought you were big. You're not. Not only are you not big, this giant rock we live on, that's not very big either. What I want you to understand this morning is how small we are, yes, but how huge God is. So, you have Saturn and our planet, 898 million miles away from it. How huge and vast and, and all of this just space between that, how massive and huge it is all of that, the scriptures would say, fits in the palm of God's hand. Like it's just nothing. It's like he picked up a pebble off the ground. It just is nothing to him. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. As we look at this picture, what I want you to experience is all, all for God, that as we look at this picture, this proclaims the glory of God. This is a picture of his handiwork. All of this, how massive and huge and expansive this is, he did it in six days. It was just, just nothing. That's how great and glorious our God is. And so as we worship him, we worship him knowing how huge he is, how amazing he is, how vast and strong and powerful he is, and at the same time, how intimate and close he is to you. That huge, massive, awe-inspiring God is also intimate and close and right here worship him, we praise him, and he 
so kindly and graciously engages with us and has a relationship with us and listens to us and answers our prayers and responds when we call. So I want to encourage you to bow your heads for me. And I want to, I want to pray for us as we begin our time together. Lord God, as we, as we see the works of your hands, as we see how glorious and amazing you are, how the heavens truly do declare your glory, how the sky above us proclaims your handiwork, God, we cannot escape the proclamation of your glory. It is all around us. Everywhere we look, creation screams, glorify God, glorify God. God is great. God is great. So I pray, God, for us in our hearts, we will proclaim the same thing here this morning. We will proclaim glory and honor and praise and reverence and awe and worship to you because you are worthy of it all. Thank you. We love you, God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Good morning, church. Let's sing.
These things are true. Church, I love how Scripture says, I love this truth, this terrible truth, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he provides a way, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. And because this is true, we must therefore, therefore, pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. We are called to obedience in Christ, to obedience to God's word, to submit our lives so that Christ's life in us might come out, right, by his Holy Spirit, that he would enable us to live these truths out, church. Listen, on this rock that we stand that is Christ Jesus, we can proclaim to the world that there is something different, and his name is Jesus. And so when they see you, they see a completely different you. And they say, what happened? And you say, Christ happened to me. We should live our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would simply we would see these truths in our hearts realized through studying scripture, through prayer, through fellowship with the saints, and that we would see you for who you really are, that we would value you, that we would treasure you. And having treasured you, we would say, yes, Lord, glory to God in the highest. You are worthy of our praise and our lives. Let's continue to sing and celebrate.
gave, you gave your life away. You gave, you gave your life away for me. Your grace has broken everything. My sins are gone, my destiny. You gave, you gave your life away for me. You gave, you gave your life away. You gave, you gave your life away. You gave. Um, I want to ask if uh, my wife Marie and also Charlie Aldi, if you two could join me up here. Come on up. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, the month of March is actually Pastor's Wife's Appreciation Month. And so we have my wife Marie and Charlie. Come on up, Charlie. Uh, uh, Charlie's husband Steve is our adult discipleship pastor. We also have Emily uh, Culpitz. Her husband is the student discipleship pastor, as well as Heather, uh, who is Pastor Scott's wife or worship pastor. We're going to recognize uh, Heather and Emily during the second service. Um, but we want to take just a minute and recognize these ladies uh, because the being a pastor's wife really is a calling. Uh, it, it's a calling. Um, that uh, it's a it's a very unique calling, and that you're called to someone else's calling, and so it's a it's a it can be a bit of a strange life. Um, it's something that God definitely has to empower a woman to 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 be able to do, and and we are so unbelievably blessed here at our church with our pastors' wives. They just number one, they just personally love Jesus, which is their first job. Uh, they love and support their husbands, which is their second job, and then they just care so much for you. They just love being a part of this church and just serving you as church members uh, and so we want to take just a minute and recognize these ladies so you can just step up just for a minute uh, ladies uh, I want to read a scripture that I think uh, really uh, encapsulates a day like today celebrating pastors wives recognizing them I think it does it very well Proverbs 31 10 through 12 says an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And, and what a perfect picture of a pastor's wife 
and uh, specifically what a perfect picture of the pastor's wives that we have here. So can you take just a minute and tell them thank you, just give them a hand, just tell them thank you for their service and, and how much they, they do for us as a church. Um, we have just a small token of uh, thank you, uh, Charlie, for you. Thank you very much for Marie. Thank you very much. Um, and I want to take just a minute as well uh, to pray for these ladies, uh, asking the Lord's blessings on them and praying that God would continue to use them in ministry. Uh, so can you just pray with me as we lift up our pastor's wives? Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you, God, for these women. We thank you, God, just for the gift that they are for us as a church. We thank you, God, for all that they do the unseen things, um, even if it's just uh, helping uh, pick their husband up off the floor after he feels like he has just completely not done something great. Uh, they, they just serve in so many amazing ways, the, the behind-the-scenes ways of just all the prayers, all the encouragement, all the love, um, all of the uh, loving correction, all of the great ways that they serve and bless. And God, I have no doubt that the, um, the reward for these women in heaven is going to be phenomenal. Um, and I pray that we just get to help them experience a tiny little taste of that on earth when we just say thank you. So I pray, God, your blessings on these women. I pray, God, that you would encourage them, that they would know, Lord, that you are empowering them for this ministry, and they'll continue to see great fruit happen for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, can you just give him one more hand just to say thank you? And, um, and I know also that they would, uh, I mean, any, as, they, as they're done throughout the day, just, you know, tell them thank you and encourage them. Notes of encouragement. I know they'd, they'd love all that stuff as well, just as you personally tell them thank you uh, from your heart. So thank you, ladies, very much. You can have a seat. And... Uh, So the thing about a pastor's wife is um, when you tell them, hey, so uh, you're going to be up on stage, uh, they, they don't care for that typically. Uh, and so they're like, um, excuse me, what was that? Uh, uh, so uh, thank you, ladies, for being willing to do that. They are a definite behind-the-scenes blessing and encouragement. And uh, there is, I promise you, um, if uh, God is blessing or ministering or seeing fruit in any way in a church uh there is a very encouraging praying pastor's wife behind a vast majority of that so both for this congregation and any other church you'd ever be a part of remember them remember them encourage them pray for them uh they uh they genuinely love what they do uh and, but uh, i know they would love uh the the uh encouragement and thank you part all right Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, let's find the book of James together, all right? James chapter 5. James 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to pick it up in verse 7 today. Uh, and if you've been with us in James, you know we've been walking through this idea of a faith that saves you will also change you. The, the whole point of James has been when you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that's a faith that changes you. It makes you different, right? It it, it, you bear fruit, you repent of sin, you're different today than you were a year ago. It grows you, it changes you. You're, you're a different 
person. And so we've been seeing how that happens in a lot of different areas. Today we're going to look at the importance of faith and you growing in your faith and patience. Oh, I said the P word. Uh Uh-oh. We hate patience. We absolutely hate the idea of patience. I genuinely think we're afraid of patience as people. I think we're afraid of it because of what it implies. Patience implies you're not in charge and you can't hit the eject button. Patience implies you have no control over what the outcome will be or what that timeline will be. You can't do it. You can't fix it. You have to be patient. And we aren't crazy about this, yes? However, what we're going to see today is, it is profoundly significant for our walk with Christ. Not only patience, but we're going to even up the ante today. You ready? We're not just going to talk about patience. Specifically, the focus today is going to be you being patient with other people. Oh, no. As long as it was a stoplight, I'm okay with that. Okay, Jesus, I'll trust you for this 30 seconds waiting for a stoplight. But now I've got to be patient with people. But this is, this is a powerfully significant key in you growing in your walk with Christ. So here's going to be our big idea we're going to kind of circle around today. Trusting God is the greatest thing you can do to help your relationship with other people. Trusting God is the greatest thing you can do to help your relationship with other people. The key to that relationship getting better isn't them changing. It's you trusting God more. The key to that relationship getting better isn't you two communicating better. It's you trusting God more. At the end of the day, what we're going to see unpacked in the scriptures is you're not patient with that person because you don't trust God. And as we trust God, we are greatly empowered to now be patient with that person. All right? So, James chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. All right? Big idea number one is this. We are patient with people because we trust God. We are patient with people because we trust God. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, really interesting. There are two different words for patience that James uses. One is a word that speaks of being patient in circumstances. We saw that back in James 1, that enduring trial helps you grow in patience. That's the idea of you being patient in a circumstance, a situation, right? Some hardship that you're going through. Here in chapter 5, it's a different word. It's not the same. This word for patience implies you being patient again with people. It means you being slow to retaliate. You being slow to push back. You being slow and gentle in how you respond to someone. And he's saying here, be patient because Jesus is coming back. 
So if you were with us last week, this is kind of a continuation of the flow. This is how the letters in the New Testament work. They're letters, right? They're continuous thought. We break them up into chunks when we teach and preach, but they're a continuing thought. And so last week what we saw was this. There were a group of people who were kicked out of their homes because of the emperor, and then they went to new homes, and when they went to these new homes, they had wicked landowners that were harassing them and stealing from them and basically committing judicial murder. They were defrauding them and keeping their uh, wages away from them, but then they tried to get that money back, but they owned the court system, so they couldn't do anything. So they basically just left these families to die of starvation. They're experiencing horrible, horrible mistreatment. And more than likely, as, as this letter from James is being read in the church, it's being read to a group of people who are in this boat, right? They're experiencing this. They're like, so they're going to that first part about these landowners. And if you were with us last week, they're talking about how they're going to be judged and how they're heaping up treasures for themselves. But all that treasure's really going to do is, is be kindling for the fires of hell that's going to consume them for all eternity. And you can imagine the the... The people who are working in the fields, who have been cheated by these landowners, and are sitting in church hearing this, are going, yeah! Get them, God! All right! Finally! They're going to get what they deserve! Yeah! And then, oh, here's the thing about the Bible. Just keep reading. Right? Because eventually, he's going to get to you. Right? We all like it when we're reading it and we think about somebody else like, I hope that guy was listening in church today. Come back next week, brother. We're going to hit you. All right? So they keep on going to verse 7. And after he spent time unpacking, that look, they're wicked. They're wicked. And God is going to judge them. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Then he gets to verse 7 and he switches the gears and now focuses on these people who are being mistreated and being abused. And he looks at them and he says... You now, your responsibility, be patient. Be patient. Wait. Don't push back. Don't stand up to defend yourself. Be patient. And he specifically says, be patient twice. He references this. Be patient, therefore, brothers... Until the coming of the Lord. And he says it again in verse 8. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. What is this coming of the Lord? The coming of the Lord is the biblical teaching that Jesus will physically, visibly return to earth. He will come back. And when he comes back, he is going to raise the dead, he is going to hold judgment, he is going to formally and gloriously set up his kingdom on earth, and he will reign over his people. Jesus is coming back. And it says there that his coming back is imminent, right? In verse 8 it says it's at hand, it's coming. Jesus is returning. And that return is much sooner than we think. And when he returns, he's going to set it all right. And this is what James is trying to explain, trying to get at. 
as you, as you go through the New Testament, this is the consistent idea. What, what the New Testament is always trying to do, and we, we lose this because we're now 2,000 years away from the writing of the New Testament, we can kind of get um, cold to this idea of Jesus returning. Like, well, I mean, they keep saying it's coming and it's not coming. Like, when's it going to happen? We can kind of get cold to that idea. But the, the consistent New Testament teaching is keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. And our understanding and belief that Jesus is coming back is what's supposed to completely impact how we now live. Jesus is coming back, so live differently. Uh, you see, Romans 13, 12, Paul said, The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, wake up and live differently. Hebrews 10, 25 says, Christians, stop skipping church because Jesus is coming back and you need to encourage one another. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, The end of all things is drawing near, so take hope. Jesus is coming back. It is imminent. And that should impact the way we live. And what he's saying here specifically is this should impact the way we consider people in being patient with them. Okay, they hurt you. Okay, they sinned against you. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make that right. And so he gets to just look to Jesus. Jesus is coming back. I get to be patient with you because Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix whatever needs to be fixed. If something is wrong and it needs to be made right, Jesus will do that. If something is crooked and it needs to be made straight, Jesus is coming back and he's going to do that. We just wait for Jesus. This changes everything. If you believe that Jesus is really coming back and you believe that when he comes back, he's going to make all things right you get to just sit back, wait, trust him, and be patient. But if that's not where your thought is, and that's not where your mind is, and that's not what dominates the way that you think and live and function and make decisions, then all you have is you. You have no one to look to for help. You have nowhere to go for help. You have to depend on you, so therefore you're impatient. You're pushing. You're striving. You're, you're, you're trying to make sure that person knows that you're right and they're wrong. And you have to do that because who else are you going to look to? But when we see that Jesus is coming back, he is returning, glorious and triumphant, taking his people with him. And when Jesus comes back, look, first time he came back, he was humble baby in a manger. Second time he comes back, no. He, he is ultimate fighting Jesus when he comes back. Right? He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got a tattoo down his side. It's in Revelation. Don't email me. He's riding a horse, and he's brought so much judgment on the wicked people who have harmed you, it says that his half of his horse is soaked in blood. Jesus comes back, and he's going to make it right. So you trust him. It's like, I don't, have to, I don't have to fight that battle. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to do it for me. My big brother is going to come back, and when he does, he's going to beat the addict. I mean, it's just going to be bad. Like, I don't have to worry. I don't have to stress. I don't have to do any of that. I can just be patient because I trust Jesus. 
So then what do we do in the meantime? That's, look here, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So what do we do in the meantime? The rest of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. That word wait is so cool also. You can kind of circle that one and do a little definition on the side if you can. The word wait there means to look for a future event knowing that what you're looking for is going to happen. Right? You're not hoping. You're not wishing. You're not crossing your fingers. You're waiting knowing this is a thing that's going to happen. Jesus is going to return. He's waiting for two things. Jesus is going to return. And the second thing he's waiting for here is the understanding that fruit is going to bear out in me in the meantime. I know God is going to do it. God's going to grow me and mature me and bear fruit out in me and do amazing things in me. All in the meantime, I'm waiting for him to come back and finally set everything right so I get to just trust God to do his work. He's doing it. And as you trust him, as you trust him, waiting for his return, waiting for him to establish what he is going to establish, you get to just say, God, you do in me whatever you want to do in the process. And then he gets in verse 8. You also, again, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. The word establish means to speak, to make stable, to firm, to strengthen, to concrete. Here's what I want you to see. As we're waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things new, the responsibility for us is to focus on our hearts, not their hearts. That is super important. We get impatient when we're focused on their heart. He says, look, Jesus is coming back, so in the meantime, what I want you to do is establish whose heart? Yours. My responsibility is to seek to establish my heart. And as I seek to focus on me, not you, I focus on what I need to grow and mature in what, not, not what you need to grow and mature in. As I'm doing this, God is establishing my heart. He's doing things in my heart, and I'm waiting and trusting in him. Does this make sense? Jesus is coming back. So I don't have to get all upset with someone who has done me wrong, someone who's offended me, someone who's hurt me. I don't have to do that. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to make that right. And so I get to just wait and trust and establish my heart in Christ and, lot, and let God work out, bear out good fruit in me and just, just experience the joy of the process. Because this is what God's doing. So then, next, he switches gears, not so much to the the lost people who are hurting you, he then switches gears to inside the church. All right? So our next point of understanding of patience is we must be patient with other Christians because you need grace too. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So it says do not grumble. The word grumble is really cool. Um, it means sort of this sigh or groan 
It doesn't even necessarily imply that you have to be speaking. So this is the important part. It's not that you bit your tongue and didn't say that thing about that person. You've been thinking it. Right? This, this grumbling in your hearts toward one another. Right? And, and he calls them, again, brothers. The implication here, again, is inside the church, wrong ideas and thoughts and and opinions and grumblings against one another i'm i'm grumbling in my heart against you you're grumbling in your heart against me this back and forth reciprocal we're holding stuff against one another and 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 being upset with one another and easily offended and and slow to forgive and keeping people at an arm's length and well i don't really connect with that person well you know that guy And you have a very clear command of God here telling you, stop doing that. And he tells you why to stop doing it. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, the real judge, Jesus, is standing at the door watching you. Right? I mean, in my mind, I think about my kids, especially when they were smaller. Right? You ever snuck around at the door watching your kids go at one another, but they don't know you're there. So you're just watching it. And you're like, they turn around, and immediately they try to pretend like what just happened didn't happen. No, 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 I didn't say that. I heard you. You calling me deaf? Like I I literally just heard you say that I just heard. No, 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 that's not what I meant. It sounded like you meant it, right? I, I Jesus is saying, look, I'm the real judge, and I'm standing at the door, and I can see your heart, and I see everything you're doing. And Jesus was abundantly clear in the Gospel of Matthew. The way you judge others, that's how you're going to be judged. So just a real quick, honest question. Just, just forget what the Bible should say. Let's just be gut-level honest. How hard do you want to be judged? How hard would you like to be judged? Would you like grace to be shown to you? Would you like Jesus to show you compassion and grace and mercy? Would you like for you to be given the benefit of the doubt? Do you like having all your words parsed and picked apart and nitpicked? And you said this and you should have said that. And why did you say it this way? And what about that? Do you like that happening to you? My guess is going to be no. So you probably shouldn't do it either. And and there are two big ideas I think are really important here. We need to understand both of these in order to to, to establish how we should interact with one another in the church. You ready? Number one is this. Two, this is be honest. All right? We're nothing if we're not honest here. Let's be honest. honest. Honest truth number one. You have difficult people in your life that are hard to love. Don't look at anybody, eyes right here. You have people in your, okay, let's don't be, let's, let's, there are people in this church you find it difficult to love. And I know we're not supposed to pretend like that's not happening, but you're a liar, all right? There are people in this church, if you're involved here, like if you just show up on a Sunday morning and duck out, other than the guy that cut you off in the parking lot, you don't know what I'm talking about. You need to get more involved. If you're actually involved and you seek to make this your spiritual home, you engage with people, you're in a small group with people, you're in their life, you're in their life. If that is true of you, there are people 
in this room, you have difficulty loving. You're easily offended with them. You're easily bothered by what they say. You're not quick to forgive them. You're pretty easily frustrated and irritated by them because why do they keep talking or why would they refuse to talk or what? They, like, right? There's someone in this room that's that for you. Point number one. Truth number two, you ready for this? You're that for someone else. Right? You're that for someone else. The problem is this. You know why we judge? The reason we judge people is because we think we are way better than we actually are. We think, I've got this thing licked. So let me tell you what's wrong with you, and you what's wrong with you, and you what's wrong with you. And then we'll throw in this because we know we're sounding like a jerk. So we'll throw in this, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Sounds like it. You are the source of someone's help me Jesus. Okay? You are. You are. I am too. There are people in this room that pray for me every day, not because they love me, but because they're praying Jesus moves me. Okay? It happens. It happens. How do you want them to treat you? Treat them the same way. Right? This is Jesus. James is constantly ripping off Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. Go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's going to sound like just like James. Treat them how you want to be treated. Judge them in the same way you would want to be judged. Treat them with the kind of compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness you would like to be treated with. Be patient with them because you would like for them to be patient with you. Right? It, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. The idea here is when you do grumble, you will be judged. And it won't be by someone in this room. It'll be by Jesus, who's standing at the door, watching the whole thing play out. And the way you judge will be the way you are judged. We're to be patient with other Christians. Gentle with them, kind with them, forgiving with them. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. Letting them state their case and, and, and believing the best about them. You're called to do that because that's exactly what you would want them to do for you. That's the kind of grace and mercy and forgiveness you want to be shown to you. So now show that to others. And then if you go into verse 10, he gives a, uh, a, a, an example of patience. Verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, 
He picks up the story of Job as an example. So if you've ever read the book of Job, you've been around church for a long time, maybe you've heard the story of Job. So um, the idea is Job was a righteous man, and Satan came to God one day and said, well, the only reason Job loves you is because you give him so much great stuff. Take his stuff away, and he'll curse you. So God said, okay, do it. And I love the fact that there's never any, we get this idea that there's this great battle between God and Satan, like it doesn't happen. Right? Satan had to come ask for permission, and then God gave him very strict, clear parameters. Right? God's in control of the whole thing. Even like Armageddon, we think about like, oh, Armageddon, the war of all wars. Read the book of Revelation. It's like the whole thing is summed up in half a verse. Right? Bad guys showed up. Jesus said a word, and they all disintegrated. Like it just, boom, over. He's in total control. So Satan comes to God and says, well, here's the deal. And God says, okay, well, fine, go do this. So eventually what happens is God allows Satan to kill all of Job's children, make him absolutely penniless, complete and total poverty, and then gave him a physically debilitating disease. The only thing that Job was left with were three worthless friends who kept thinking that he must have been some secret sinner, and his wife who said, Job, why don't you just give up, curse God, and kill yourself already? That was a joy, right? Probably the worst thing Job experienced was God not killing his wife. And now, we have Job as this example of patience and suffering. Why? Well, because you read the book of Job, and what happens? Yes, Job struggled. Job was not perfect. He struggled. He doubted. He wrestled with God. But even in the midst of all of that, he had faith. And he stayed the course, and he endured, and he trusted God. Even when he didn't see or understand, even when it didn't make sense, even when everyone around him said, Job, this must be your fault, and this must be your fault, and this must be your fault. Just admit that you're the one that sinned, that you're the one that did wrong. And Job's sitting there going, look, I'm, I'm asking God to show me. He's not telling me anything. I don't know of any sin. All I know is I'm going to trust God. And in the midst of all of that, we see Job, this enduring example of patience. And, and it says in verse 10 also, I'm assuming verse 11, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's a really cool little phrase. Let's unpack that just for a moment. The purpose of the Lord. The word purpose means the end goal. In other words, he's saying, you, we've got the benefit of being able to read all of Job and see beginning to end. Job was living it. He couldn't do that, right? He's just living every day as it comes. We've got the full thing, and we can see the end goal and purpose was what? God's end goal for Job was to make a better Job. And so he's walking through suffering, and he's walking through difficulty, and he's walking through pain, not because it's pointless or, or, or meaningless, or God's being mean or picking on him, but because God is desiring to make him better. And the only way that happens is if you allow God to do some cutting and you patiently let him do it. So imagine if a madman 
comes running up to me with a knife trying to stab me. What am I going to do? Right? I'm going to try to stop that from happening. Right? I'm either going to run away or try to fight him off or pull out my own weapon and try to stop him first. Right? I'm going to do something to try to stop this from happening. I don't want this madman to cut me. But also, imagine if I was diagnosed with a very serious illness and the only hope I had was surgery. Well, I would very willingly lay down on that operating table and allow the surgeon to cut me and do whatever it needs to happen. Both have a knife. Both desire to cut me. But one is wanting to do it to harm me. Another wants to do it to help me. And this is how I want us to think about the Lord. This is how he's talking about the purpose of God in Job's life. God is doing the cutting. But you can trust him to make the perfect cut. God is not the ambulance driver who shows up after the accident trying to figure out what's going on. God is the surgeon who has a plan and purposefully makes the right cut. You can trust him. We can be patient because we're trusting God. God's going to take care of this. God's going to do this. God's going to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. I trust him. And then, real quick, you get verse 12, which, to be honest, stumps a lot of um, Bible teachers and Bible commentators because it seems to not fit very well. Verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So it, it almost feels like sort of out of nowhere. It's, oh, and by the way, don't swear. Uh, okay. And, and when it's talking about swearing, it's not talking about like profanity. It's talking about swearing an oath. Uh, and so what would happen, and Jesus again referred to this in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. Um, and, and, and he says in there, just like James, look, you don't do this. Don't swear to heaven or swear to earth or swear by this or swear by that. But instead, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so what they're saying is this. What these people were doing is they weren't just naturally honest people. They couldn't just do a handshake deal and say yes. And someone would go, I totally believe that guy. They had to swear by all these things. I swear by heaven and I swear by earth and I swear by this and I swear by that. They're trying to manipulate someone to believe them, someone to agree with them, someone to come along with them. So they're trying to manipulate this process. And what James is saying here, what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is, no, you should just be a changed person in Jesus Christ so that you're honest and that you can just walk in honesty and people trust you. And I think it does fit here very well. Here's why. When you're having conflict with someone else, and you're desperately trying to get that conflict resolved. You use every means you can think of to try to get this thing fixed. I swear it'll be better, and I swear it'll be right, and I'll swear I'll never, never do that again, and I swear if you ever do it again, I'm going to do this. And, that. and what's happening is, instead of us being patient and trusting God, we're putting the focus back on us and we're trying to figure out what we can say and what we could do to get this thing done instead of just being patient and trusting God. Which brings us back to our original thought. 
trust in God is the greatest thing you can do to help your relationship with other people. So, have you ever been told, never pray for patience? Right? Isn't that advice we always give? Never pray for patience. Never pray for patience. Can I be really honest with you? I love you, and I know your grandma that told you that meant well. I think it's really bad advice uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit working in your life is supposed to bear out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Being patient is supposed to be a mark of being a Christian. Not only that, it's the character and nature of God, First John says, as followers of Jesus, we're to live like Jesus, and Jesus was patient, so you should be patient. You should desire patience, you should pursue patience, and you should pray that God would bear up patience in your life. Uh, second, uh, the reason that often people say, don't pray for patience, is they go, oh, don't pray for patience, because something bad's going to happen. Again, I tell you this all the time, we're Christians, not witch doctors. You saying a thing isn't what magically is like. God went up in heaven going, well, I wasn't going to make that bad thing happen. But since you pray for patience, bam! It doesn't work that way. That bad thing was going to happen regardless. That difficult season was going to happen regardless. But you got two choices. You can go through that difficult season not pursuing patience. And you go through it frustrated, angry short-tempered, bitter, unforgiving, not allowing God to bear out the fruit that he wants to bear out in you, you're going to flunk that test, and he's just going to make you retake it? Or you could go through that trial, pursuing and desiring patience, trusting God. Lord, you do what you're going to do. I trust you. I want you to bear this out in me. I want you to, to, to produce in me the fruit that you desire to produce in me. I want you to do in me what you're going to do in me. I trust you. I want to encourage you today. A key to your spiritual growth is you pursuing patience. And it's just like Jesus did. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That word endure is the same word we get patience from. He endured the cross. He was patient in the cross, despising the shame. He didn't love it. He didn't embrace it. He wasn't excited about it. He despised the shame that came with it. But he was patient. Why? Because he knew the glories that was coming on the other side, now being seated at the right hand of God and the throne of God. He, he was patient through the cross because he knew the Father was accomplishing something great that could only be done through this path. And the reason you and I are to walk patiently through trial is because there's something God wants to accomplish in you, and he can only do it through this path. So be patient and trust him. Be patient and trust Him. I'm going to ask our band to come up. And, and as they're doing that, I want to 
I want to circle back one more quick time on something. So back in verse 12, we talked about that swearing, swearing falsely to God, right? So they would swear these things to God, you know, God, I'll do this, and God, I'll do that, and, and all these sorts of things. And, and I want to end just very quickly, just listen to me just for a moment. I want to ask you in this room a very serious, straightforward question. Are you swearing falsely to God by saying that you're a Christian? I have no doubt in my mind that there are people in this room who have told God and other people that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're not. Now, you probably think you even are, but you're not. You're depending on false things like baptism or church membership or good works or that prayer you prayed when you were seven to make you a Christian. And the truth is, you're just swearing falsely. It's not genuine salvation have you come to the point where you have said jesus christ i give you my life you have my everything you take it all my sin my shame my hopes my dreams my 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 failures my successes my past my present my future i give you everything i keep nothing for myself jesus died on the cross he died on the cross to take away your sin and in response you're required to die to yourself and give him your life heard a great line this week from aw tozer said too many christians just believe in a one death salvation jesus died that's great no 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 Jesus died for you. Now you, if you're really going to follow him, have to die for him. Die to yourself. Turn from this life and this world. Fall on your face, metaphorically and maybe even physically today, and say, Jesus Christ, I give you my life. Take away my sin. I'm yours. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for me. I'm going to pray for us. And God, as I, as I pray here this morning, I pray, God, one, for the believers here in this room, God, that we got to walk in more patience, not just because we should be patient or we ought to be patient or we want to be kind and none of those things, but God, it, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is, this is a natural manifestation of being someone who is a follower of Jesus and seeks to be intimate with Jesus, growing in the knowledge of of God. This should just happen. We, we are supposed to be patient people. I pray, God, for us that you would, in this room, awaken in us a, an understanding and an excitement for your return, Jesus. And as we are excited for your return, we're patient with this world and we're patient with those who sin against us. And we're patient with brothers and sisters in Christ who might aggravate or annoy us or be sources of us needing to grow in love and grace. I pray, God, that we will be patient because we're looking to you, Jesus. We're trusting in you, Jesus. And I pray, God, for those that today, where they need to come to faith in you, 
They are not followers. They are not truly committed. They have not truly given their life to you. They're swearing falsely. So I pray, God, today that you would draw them to faith in you. Do this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's spend some time ending together worshiping. You can come up for it and pray. You can have someone to pray with you, whatever you'd like. But let's end our time today seeking Jesus Christ together.
have a seat for me just for a quick moment as we wrap up and get you guys out of here. Just a couple of quick announcements we want to throw your way. Number one is if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. You can uh, connect with us by grabbing your cell phone and texting the word connect to our number on the screen. Uh, we'd love to do that just so we can know who you are and how we can pray for you. Uh, also, my wife and I will be up front. We'd love for you to come up and say hello so we can just put a name with a face. Uh, but for everyone here, we have three big announcements that we want to let everyone know about what's going on here at Southview, how you can be a part of everything. First, Vacation Bible School that's coming up in June, and now we've got to get our volunteers. Okay, so if you want to volunteer at Vacation Bible School, text the word volunteer to our number, 910-424-1298. We have training sessions today and next week. If you signed up for the one today, that's going to be in the FLC. We said the media room, uh, but it's going to be the FLC. So if you just go out, out any door here and go that way, you're going to find it. Um, to be honest, we had to do that because so many people are signing up. We had to find a bigger room. So thank you guys for that. Praise the Lord. So if you're doing that today, that's going to be uh, uh, in the FLC. If you sign up for next week, that's going to be um, uh, either the multimedia room or the FLC. We'll let you know uh, next week what that looks like. But don't forget that. Second, men's rafting trip. It's going to be April 28th through May 1st. If you want to go, text RAFT to go. Uh, it's going to be $250 for adults. And if you want to take your teenage son with you, that's going to be $150 for your son. But sign up for that, guys, to go and be a part of that. And then Easter weekend. Easter weekend is quickly coming upon us. We're going to have a whole big weekend planned. Friday night, worship night, Saturday afternoon, picnic and barbecue cook-off. Very happy for that. Uh, and I've, uh, I've already said that I'm a judge because I'm not going to lie. There are perks to the gig, okay? So I'm now a judge. Uh, but we need help for a couple of things. So if you want to sign up, just text the word Easter. That's going to get you signed up to, uh, for the picnics. We know how many to prepare for. You can sign up to be a volunteer. You can sign up your child for the Easter egg hunt, cornhole tournament if you want to do that, all those sorts of things. Uh, we also need pre-filled Easter eggs, all right? Not necessarily that you go buy eggs, put candy in it, and fill it. But if you could go buy the bags with eggs already filled, we're asking for that um, just for quality control purposes. So if you could do that, we would appreciate that. You can bring those and drop those off in the next couple of weeks. Uh, one more quick thing. Next Sunday, we are going to have a very quick business meeting after the 11 o'clock service. For an HVAC unit we have to replace, you can pick a letter up in the back for that to let you know all of those things. All right. I believe that's it. The last that I have for all the other announcements, you can download the app and see what's going on. All right. I love you guys. God bless you. Jesus, thank you for your people. I pray your blessings on them this week. Love you guys. Amen.